0: You are listening to a sermon from In Town Presbyterian Church in Portland, Oregon. If you'd like to listen to other sermons or find out more about the ministries and work of In Town, please visit InTownChurch.com. Count of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now, that same day, this is later at the end of the, of the book of Luke. That same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along the road? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, What was said in all the scriptures concerning himself? As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scripture to us? They got up and returned once again to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The gospel Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your gospel, for your good news that says new life is available to all for the taking. That you open your arms to embrace each of us who will come to you and express a need of you. Father, we are needy people in so many ways. Help us to see our needs spiritually and walk to Jesus. Cling to him. Cling to the message that he expounds for us that is embedded in all of Scripture. Father, we pray that you would do this now as we encounter your word once again. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The debate about the Bible has historically been about its trustworthiness. How do we know that the Bible that we have today, this book, is a reasonable facsimile of the original manuscripts? And that's still a valid concern. We ought to know that what we have printed here is actually God's word. But the more pressing concern, as you talk to Portlanders, uh, more pressing concern in our, in our overall culture is not so much can we trust the Bible, but the concern is about what's in the Bible. It's argued that there's many things in the Bible that even if I believed it, would, it was true, I still couldn't believe it because it's regressive culturally. It's a mixed bag. Some things are great, the beauty of Jesus, the kindness, the love, and so forth, like that, but there's lots of parts that make me uncomfortable. Lots of parts that I think are culturally outdated, culturally regressive. So how can we insist that all of it is true? How can we say that that we stand underneath the authority of all of Scripture and not just bits and pieces? We're going to look at this from three perspectives. The academic debate that surrounds sort of the trustworthiness of Scripture. How do we know that we have the right books in the Bible? Uh, And then the cultural debate. What do we do with those hard texts, those problem texts that cause us concern? And then the family debate. What do we do? How do we know? How do we live by this truth? And what kind of truth is it? So the academic debate, the cultural debate, and the family debate. So the academic debate goes largely like this, that the Bible is the book of the winners. It's the story of the winners, the books that make up our current Bible, were chosen in order for the early, early church to consolidate its power. And so it sort of picked and choose, chose certain books that reflected how they wanted things to go. So the Bible is the story of the winners. And if you've read uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, this is basically his, uh, his idea as well, that the Bible was adopted around the time of Constantine to promote the views of the empire. So we really don't know what the original Jesus taught and thought and said and what he did. We just see what has been, because that's been jettisoned, that's been hidden. We only know what the early church wants us to think about, about Jesus. And he was remade from just this itinerant preacher that went around mostly in Jerusalem and had a following. And in the early church, they make him into a God. That he is now divine, not, not simply human. Now, this has gotten a good bit of traction in our culture, not because the academics behind it are so strong, but just simply because it's been repeated over and over. Richard Baucom, who is a a professor at the University of St. Andrews, has written a a landmark study on uh, the Gospels and uh, defending the historicity of the Gospels. And his conclusions are very difficult To undermine. And he argues that if Constantine wanted to set up a belief system, if he wanted a belief system or a text to consolidate his power, that the Bible would not be the one that he would choose. He gives us three things. He actually gives a series of reasons that we should trust in the historicity of the Gospels. But let me just give you three. First of all, he says that they're based on eyewitness testimony that the gospel writers are are writing based upon interviews, based upon people that they know, that they have gone and talked to. In verse 2 in our passage, we heard Luke say, I give you, Theophilus, this is a gift, an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He says, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. And elsewhere, the gospel writers mention specific names, the name of the person that carried Jesus' cross, the names of his followers, the names of those that witnessed miracles, those who could vouch for Jesus and vouch for the letters that they are writing. He says, look, you can go talk to these people. They're still alive. If you don't believe me, go talk to them. They will back up what I'm writing in this letter. And Paul, the apostle Paul, does it in fact, the very same thing, perhaps writing even closer to the time of Jesus. And he says, writing of a defense of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, <clears throat> that he was buried, raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom, what, are still living. Look, Go talk to them. I'm not making this claim out of the sky. Go talk to these people who saw Jesus dead and buried and then alive again. You could write documents hundreds of years later claiming basically whatever you want. But when you're writing these documents that close to the time of Jesus, you can't fabricate things out of thin air. Now, secondly, Balcom deals with this idea that it was Constantine or the early church who wanted to consolidate its power. And he says that they wouldn't have chosen the Bible because it doesn't set them up in the way that they would want. It doesn't set them up in, in order for them to say, what we're telling you is right. See, look here at the Bible. A couple of things. One, Jesus is crying out at the end of his ministry that God has forsaken him, that his father has left them. He asked God that he would not have to complete the mission. He says, if there's any other way that you can do this, Father, please let it be done in that way. So it's a strange way to say that's the type of God, that's the type of emperor that I'm going to be. And then secondly, we see that having women be the first witnesses to the resurrection, having women have to convince the slow-witted men of the truthfulness of of the resurrection would be totally unacceptable in that day. Women's testimony was not admissible in court. So for Luke to pick the women and say they're the ones that knew, they're the ones that had to come and convince us, completely culturally unacceptable in that day. And then he depicts the disciples as petty, as jealous, as faithless. The leaders of the early church are those descendants of those people. They're saying these guys were ran when the time got, when the going got tough. So depicting them in that unfavorable, unfavorable light, how would that in any way help to consolidate Constantine's power or the early church's power? And then the third thing we have to wrestle with, is this actual historical reportage, or is it just a myth? Is it a fabrication? Is it some story that someone made up or that a bunch of people made up? And what Bauckham says in his book and he quotes C.S. Lewis, is that it's completely dissimilar to the way that ancient myths work, completely dissimilar. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like, and I know none of them are like this. Either this is reportage, or some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. The narrative gives details that are completely dissimilar to the way that ancient myths were written. So either you can say that person or these people completely invented this idea of how modern reportage is done out of thin air, or it's actual reportage. It's, I mean, how, how myths and novels are written, or it's actual reportage. If you go with legend, however, you have much bigger problems. The historical reliability of the biblical account can be trusted. But the other issue that we need to deal with is, do I want to? Do I want to trust the Bible? Do I want to submit to its authority? The average Portlander would have have more trouble with the content of the Bible rather than its historical reliability. The case can be made quite well that this stands up the test, even of modern scholarship, that this is a very accurate representation of what was originally written. But you could have an airtight case built for that, that the Bible is an accurate depiction of what the original writers wanted to convey. But an average secular person may say, yeah, but I don't, I don't like what it conveys. It's culturally regressive, it's imperialistic, it's exclusive, etc. The list goes on. So what if this is your response? What do we do if you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm willing to read the Bible I'm willing to trust that it's basically a facsimile of the originals. But I have problems when I come against certain texts. They seem very culturally outdated, very regressive. What do do you do then? Well, a couple of things. And if you've read Reason for God uh, by Tim Keller, a couple of these things are there. And you can go, if they don't make sense as I say it, and, and do a little bit of study as well. But one is that you realize that your response is not unique and it's not new. Your response to a certain text that you say, I don't like that, is certainly not unique, and it's not new. Do you see what Luke recorded in this passage that he recorded in his careful investigation and orderly account? He says that he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You see, his earliest disciples are perplexed, they're befuddled, they're confused. How does this work? How does this jive with what I know of the Old Testament? So if they were perplexed and they had seen him, they knew him, they had walked along the roads with him, then certainly at the historical distance that you and I stand out, we're going to be perplexed and confused sometimes. We're going to see things that Jesus said and say, Whoa, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can like that. I like the love part, but that's hard, Jesus. Now, we can't go down the list of all the problem texts in the Bible because, you know, we only have 30 minutes. But if you have one that is the defeater belief for you, the defeater text, then I could give you a list of 10 more. There's many things in Scripture that are hard, hard to wrestle with. But please know that we're not unaware of these things. We're not taking this Bible just because someone says you need to believe it, but we're taking it on its own terms. And there are difficult things. Franz Kafka, as I quoted in your bulletin, says If the book we are reading does not wake us as with a fist hammering on our skulls, then why do we read it? A book must be an ice axe to break the sea frozen inside of us. Do you see what he's saying? if it doesn't cause us uncomfort, discomfort, why bother? If it doesn't contradict us from time to time, why bother reading it? If we're claiming that God himself is speaking into our world, if the gospel is breaking in through the features of an ancient culture and an ancient language, shouldn't we expect that there will be things that would be difficult to reconcile? Shouldn't we expect that the way we naturally and normally see the world and the way we expect things to be, shouldn't we think and actually hope that the Bible would contradict us from time to time? He is saying this is what's wrong with the world, wrong with you and I. Of course there's going to be things that are difficult. Wouldn't it be more worrisome as if, if after reading this account of how the gospel is broken into the world in one person and Jesus says, I am the king that's restoring all things, and that there's a problem but i have a solution wouldn't it be much more worrisome if we heard that and then said yeah all right whatever it makes sense to me of course it doesn't make sense of course there's things that are difficult it's jesus it's god stepping into our world and saying you must submit to the way i see the world of course there's going to be things that are difficult Secondly, if there's a problem text, if we bump up against something and we say, no, 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 there's no way I can believe the God of the Bible because it teaches that. Think for a moment that there's a possibility that the text doesn't actually teach what you think it does. Verse 19, these first disciples were confused because they thought the Bible taught something that it didn't, and Jesus had to correct them. and said, no, 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 you've missed the point. Let me tell you what the scriptures really say. He had to give them a fuller treatment of the scope of salvation. Now, if you stick around in town long enough, you'll experience, you'll hear people honestly wrestling with some of these difficult texts, some of the things that it says about, about hell, about exclusivity, about the relevance of gender and roles of leadership about the integration of Scripture with science. You'll hear people inside these walls that are wrestling with those things. And and this is the important thing. You'll hear many of us coming to some different conclusions on how we negotiate some of those problem texts. So think for a moment that your one interpretation may not be the only valid interpretation of a particular text. There may be others. There are intramural debates that are going on on some of these problem texts. So don't stand outside and say, no, I can't believe the Bible because of my one interpretation of this this problem text. Come inside and realize that there's an intramural debate, that you can participate in that debate as a Christian, as a person that believes the gospel. And then finally, beware of an unexamined superiority of your cultural moment. That is to say beware of thinking that we have arrived at the as a culture at the ultimate cultural moment from which we can stand and say both this is regressive and that's progressive that we know the truth that we know because of what our culture says what is regressive and what is progressive this is actually quite exclusive and narrow-minded to say that that i know what's regressive and, and progressive instead Would we be willing to let God say, let God define those terms, let God introduce to us what is true? In individualistic cultures, the idea what the Bible says about sex would be a problem because we live in an individualistic culture. We ought to be able to do what we want to do. But we like the idea of the equality of all persons, regardless of race, regardless of social status, and so forth. So we don't like one thing, but we like this other thing because of our cultural heritage in an individualistic society. You take the same doctrine, take the same idea to more of a traditional hierarchical society, that will reverse exactly. In traditional cultures, what the Bible says about sex is actually good. In fact, it may be not restrictive enough, but equality, equality in a class system, telling someone that they have dignity and worth and value, regardless of their social standing. That's very disruptive to a hierarchical system, a class system. So do you see how our cultures in different parts of the world condition us to respond in different ways and call different things culturally regressive? So be careful. It may be because your culture that you're saying blindly in an unexamined way that that's regressive or that's progressive. Instead, what does Scripture say? What does Scripture teach? What does God say about these things? The Bible, the book that claims to speak from outside of your culture, of course it's going to contradict our culture from time to time. It should. It should contradict every culture at some level. And it should contradict us from time to time. I constantly am contradicted by the Bible. I constantly have things that I think are true, and then I go to Scripture and say, well, wait a minute, maybe not. We want a religious text. We want a a faith to contradict us, to change us, to channel us into a different direction. That would be a desire that we would have, not something that would be a problem. If your religious text, if your religious viewpoint, if your civil viewpoint never contradicts you, then you've probably built an idol. And the same is true with the Bible. So we looked at the academic debate. We looked at the cultural debate. Now let's talk about the family debate. What kind of truth is the Bible? How do we assimilate it into our personal lives, into our personal stories? How do we interpret it as a church? What kind of truth is the Bible? Is it a compendium of theological insights and truths? Is it a book of, of ethics and rules? Is it? a book that we have to take literally in every part? I don't know of any true literalist who are Christians. The Old Testament is full of poetry, like the rocks cry out, the trees clap their hands, and even in the Gospels we see Jesus called the Lamb of God. Certainly we can't take those things literally. There's metaphor, there's hyperbole, there's apocalyptic prophecy. So, of course, not in every place can we take the Bible literally except when it's speaking literally, and there are times that it does. When I was growing up, I was a Christian, but I also enjoyed science, and I read a lot. I wasn't a very good science student, but I was curious. And so as I encountered kind of the scientific consensus that was out there that said um, the earth is probably more than 6,000 years old, I was perplexed because the study Bible that I had in hand said that it's not said that the, bio, that the earth is certainly less or no greater than 6,000 years old. And so what do I do with that? How do I reconcile those two positions? And I didn't think that there were only two options, but I wasn't smart enough to figure out a third. And it wasn't until I went to college and began to encounter some other commentaries and some other Christians who, who believed deeply in the authority of Scripture, who said, you know, Genesis doesn't necessarily require that belief. It's okay to hold that belief, but it's not a test of whether or not you uh, believe in the authority of the Bible. Genesis is a work of literature, and you have to read it on its own terms. There were many creation stories circulating around the ancient Near East, and what Genesis does is it presents itself as the true creation story in contrast to the other stories that were circulating, not in contrast to the modern conventions of science. See, if we read it in those terms, that it's giving a perfectly chronological narrative of what happened and what took place, then we see some difficulty. But if we read it as the true story of creation, if we read it as teaching us how God created in broad terms, it's true, it's authoritative, but it's not a specific scientific chronological event. We don't have to say it is. It's telling a story that does indeed speak truthfully about creation, but it doesn't necessarily give a strict chronology. The Bible, Genesis, it begins fundamentally, foundationally with a story. And Genesis 1 is the opening pages of that story. It's setting up what's going to happen throughout the rest of the drama, throughout the rest of the story. Now, how, though, can a story, if we're saying that the Bible is fundamentally and foundationally a story rather than just a compendium of facts, how is a story authoritative? How do we take a story and then live by it? Well, take, for instance, a, a public service announcement, one of those PSAs that you hear on the radio or see on TV. You could put on that a list of all the reasons that you shouldn't drink and drive, you shouldn't text and drive, that you should wear your seatbelt. You could give a rehashment of the law and what the law says, but it wouldn't be nearly as effective as if you say that if you tell the story of an accident in which laws were ignored, if you depict something, if you tell a story, if you describe a picture and say this is what could possibly happen, That doesn't just give you a reminder of the truth, a reminder of the facts, but it gives you an impression. It works at the heart level. It engages your gut. It engages your mind. It engages your spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher, famous pastor in Britain in the 20th century, he would not allow his uh, congregants to take notes during the sermon. Now, why would that be he said it's because people don't need more information about the, tr- about the gospel. What they need is an impression. And please, if you're taking notes right now, it's perfectly fine. This is one person's point of view. But what he said is that we in the church have plenty of information. We have a lot more information than we're, than we're currently applying in our own life. So the quest for more information, the quest for more truth, can often be a red herring. What we need is an impression of the gospel. We need to hear the story again. And if we're busy getting the information, we miss the impression. We miss the story. We miss the forest for the trees. Do you hear how Luke conveyed this? They handed them over to be crucified, but we thought he was the, only, he was the one to redeem Israel. And Jesus says, did you miss it? How did you miss this? What is obvious to me, you missed. And beginning in verse 27, he says, with the prophets, with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, it's about me. You missed it. You know the storyline, you know the data, but you haven't put it all together. You don't see what's at the center. You don't see that everything is about me. And then they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he opened the Scripture to us? The heart in the Greco-Roman concept is more than just the seat of the, mo- of the emotions. It's the whole person. It's who they are at the center. Their hearts, their whole persons burned as they listen to Jesus talk about himself. As they, as they listen to Jesus tell them the story again. The story that they already knew, he told it to them again, and they finally got it. They got an impression. They already knew the information, but they got the gospel for the first time. They understood what Jesus was saying. They have a holistic, life-changing experience with Jesus, and they felt a love they hadn't felt before, a joy that was new to them, a place in the story for them that was compelling. Okay, I see, I get it. I now know where I fit in as well. I know my place in the story. They were given a new way to live, a new way to be human. Now, I often hear people telling me that, you know, Sunday morning is fine and it's helpful, but I really need to go deeper. I need to get into the meat of the Bible. And I, I understand what they mean by that. And I think behind that is, a, is good intention but I think it also misunderstands slightly what the meat of the Bible is. There is nothing new, Martin Lloyd-Jones again. There's nothing new to say in a pulpit every Sunday. It's always the gospel. It's always the gospel. There's nothing new to say. It's always the gospel. First Peter The Apostle Peter, writing in his first letter, says that concerning the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, that the angels long to look into these things. These angels that know every passage of Scripture, presumably, long, they obsess, they fixate upon what? The center, the gospel, to gaze into what Peter calls the gospel. They long to do this, means to, to fixate, to obsess about The Bible, friends, is a grand story with lots of different pieces that sound very different, lots of different genres of literature that are all pieced together to tell one grand narrative, one grand story. And what Jesus says in verse 25 and 26, that I'm the linchpin. I'm the center of it. It's all about me. Apocalyptic literature, theological reasoning, rationale, all of these things point to me. That I am the linchpin. If we don't get this, then the Bible will be an archaic but maybe interesting myth or a suffocating rule book or a collection of abstract doctrines. It will be whatever we want it to be if we don't get that Jesus is at the center and all of the Bible is explaining who he is and how God has broken into the world to offer salvation through one person. That's the story from Genesis to Revelation, that the Bible tells. If we don't get this, the Bible won't have life. It'll just be an artifact. It'll be an interesting book, but it won't bang us over the head, as Franz Kafka says. It won't get into our, into our soul. It won't make us smile. It won't make us perplexed. It won't make us confused. It'll just be there. It's a story. It's a beautiful drama And we need to see how we fit into the story. And as we interact with the word each and every week, and we say, this is the word of the Lord. And we believe that that word is powerful, and it's living, and it's active. And so what our role is, is to say, Jesus, tell me the story again. Remind me of the gospel and remind me of where I fit into that gospel story. Tell me the story again. Give me an impression again. And friends, if that's all we know, if all we see and all we understand about the Bible is that humanity went wrong and God intervened in the person of Jesus, and then he died to pay for that wrongness, to pay for our sins, and then he was raised again and ascended and will one day come again. If that's all that you know, you have enough to ponder You have enough to live by. You have enough to think about and gaze upon, obsess about, fixate upon. That's the gospel. That's what the angels long to look into. We, of course, want to establish Bible studies and groups and that we need to do personal devotions and look at the Bible ourselves. All of these things are good insofar as they elevate Jesus, insofar as they point us again to the gospel, point us to the story. We ask God, we ask Jesus that we would long more, that we would obsess more, that we would fixate more upon the center of the story and how we fit into it and how we even participate in, that, in the conclusion of that story. Just like any good story, things go wrong and then the hero comes to set things right. And Jesus is the hero, the story, hero of the story of the Bible. And his solution is what we prayed earlier. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's the message that he brings into our broken world, and that's the message that's at the center of the story. Take hold of Jesus. He is gentle and humble of heart, and he will give you rest, rest, for your souls. That's the hope, that's the gospel, and that's the center of what we say is the truth of the Bible. Let's pray and ask God to do just that. Father, we do pray that you would break in in a new way in our hearts, that you would shine your light on the dark places, that you would make us uncomfortable with certain things that you say to us, certain things that you say about our world. Father, let us not use that as an excuse to disbelieve all of it, but let us wrestle with it well. Let us wrestle with it in community with others who are committed to you. And, Father, if we're looking in from the outside, if we're still wondering, would you meet us with the promises and the beauty and the claims of your word in a way that depicts Jesus as the gentle Savior with arms outstretched, waiting to invite us in? Father, we pray that we would see Jesus yet again, and we pray in his name. Amen.